Chapter 27 of The Fighting Shepherdess. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fighting Shepherdess by Caroline Lockhart. Chapter 27 The Sheep Queen. The long mixed train crawling into the stockyards at Omaha with its ice-encased wheels, its fringe of icicles pendant from the eaves, and snow from the wind-swept plains of western Nebraska piled on the roofs, looked like an Arctic special. Kate stood on the rear platform of the swaying caboose, looking with wearied, unkindled eyes at the myriad lights of the first city she had ever seen. Those eyes were dark-circled with fatigue, her face streaked with soft coal soot, while the wrinkled riding skirt in which she had slept was soiled and torn. Her fleece-lined canvas coat was buttoned to the throat, and she leaned negligently against the rail, watching from under the broad brim of her Stetson the twinkling lights increase. It had been Kate's intention when she left Prouty to catch a fast passenger train and meet her sheep at a feeding station a few miles outside of Omaha, but the violence of the storm had changed her plans, and she had remained to spend many tedious hours waiting on side tracks, and this, together with the work of unloading to feed and water and insufficient sleep, had brought her as near exhaustion as she ever had found herself. There was no eagerness in the sheep woman's face only the impersonal curiosity of a spectator at a display in which she had no part. She accepted as a matter of course the fact that she would be here, as she was at home an outsider, an alien. Kate saw nothing interesting or unusual in what she had done. It was all in the day's work. She was merely one of the innumerable stock-raisers bringing the results of months and years of patient effort to the great stock market of the West. As she looked listlessly at the dark silhouette of tanks and towers, skyscrapers and gabled roofs, at countless threads of smoke going straight up in the air from the great hive of industry and life, she wondered at her apathy, at the fact that there was no anticipation in her mind. Her face darkened. Had Prouty, along with other things, robbed her of the capacity for enjoyment, had it crushed out of her the last remnant of the spirit of youth? Was she old already, hopelessly old at heart? Her feeling toward the town gradually had crystallized into a cold animus, silent and unwavering. But now, as she suddenly whirled about and looked into the red winter sunset, where, back there, beyond the beyond, Prouty lay, a wave of hatred surged over her, to make her tingle to the fingertips. Usually Prouty was personified in her mind as a hulking coward, bullying the weak, fawning upon the strong, with no guiding principle in life save self-interest. But tonight, as she visualized it across the intervening miles, snowbound, windswept, desolate, it was in the guise of a shivering pauper, miserable in his present, fearful of his future. Her grip tightened on the rail of the swaying caboose, 
and all the envenomed bitterness of her nature was in her choking voice as she said between her teeth, "'Curse you, and curse you, and curse you. I hate you. You've robbed me of the happiness that belonged to my youth. You've destroyed my faith in humankind. Whatever of sweetness there was in my nature, you have turned to gall. When my day comes, I'll strike you without mercy. I'll beat you to the earth if it's in my power.' It was fully night before they were able to get right away into the yards, and Kate drew a deep breath of relief when the grinding wheels finally stopped. She and Bowers swung down together from the high step to the cinder path which lay between their own cars and a train of cattle bawling on a parallel track. As they stumbled along in the darkness toward the engine, they heard brisk footsteps coming from that direction. Low bridge, Bowers warned jocularly as they drew close. In stepping aside to avoid Bowers, the pedestrian bumped into Kate. I beg your pardon. The voice was pleasant, deep. Kate murmured a commonplace. At the instant, a brakeman hung out from the handrail of a car of the cattle train and swung his lantern. Instinctively, Kate and the man with whom she had collided, looked at each other in the arc of light. In their haste, they had scarcely slackened their steps, and it was only a second's glimpse that each had of the other's face, but it was long enough to give to each a sense of bewildered surprise. The look they had exchanged was the look one man gives to another, level, fearless, for there never was anything of coquetry in Kate's gaze and the impression she had received was of poise, patience, and worldly wisdom, tinged with a sadness in which there was no bitterness. The man walked on a pace, stopped, and swung about abruptly. Evidently, he could see nothing in the darkness. He could only hear the retreating footsteps on the cinder path. Then, suddenly, aloud, sharply, out of his bewilderment, he cried, by God, that woman looks like me. Kate and Bowers walked on without comment upon the incident, but when they had reached the yard, Bowers detached himself from Kate's side and made a rush to the nearest light, where, turning his back with a secretive air, he took from the inner pocket of his inside coat the worn and yellowed photograph that Mullendore had recognized in Bowers's wagon. He looked at it long and hard. Kate was too engrossed in directing and helping with the work of unloading, counting the sheep that had smothered, looking after those that had been injured in transit, feeding, watering, to be conscious of the attention she attracted among the helpers and others in the yards. There had been sheep queens in the stockyards before, raucous-voiced, domineering, sexless, inflated to absurdity by their success but none with Kate's personal attractiveness and her utter lack of self-consciousness. As she walked about on the long platform beside the pens, tall, straight, picturesque, with her free movement, her wide gestures, when she used her hands, together with her quiet air of authority, she was the most typical and interesting figure that had come out of that far west for a long time. When the last thing was done that required her personal attention, 
Kate went to a nearby hotel, recommended by one of the employees of the stockyard. It was third-rate and shabby, unpretentious even in its prime, but it looked imposing to Kate, who never had seen anything better than the Prouty House. The loose tiling clacked as she walked across the office to the clerk's desk. The person eyed her dubiously as she laid the flower stack containing her belongings on the counter and registered. He saw in Kate only a woman peculiarly dressed, with a tanned and not too clean face, disheveled hair, weary eyes, and alone at a late hour. He missed altogether the indefinable atmosphere of character and substantiality which a more discerning and experienced person would have recognized at once. Baggage, curtly, as she returned him the pen, she indicated the grimy flour sack. The supercilious eyebrow went up. You'll have to pay in advance six bits. Kate reddened. Is that customary, or because you don't like my looks? Taking umbrage at the asperity of her tone, he replied impudently, Well, I don't know you from a crow, do I? Kate's eyes flashed. You will, before I leave Omaha. He laughed incredulously as he took a key from the rack. Kate followed him up the dirty stairway through a dingy hall to a still dingier room in the back of the house, long and narrow. It looked like a calcimined cave, illumined by a lightning bug in a bottle when he turned the electric switch. She was too tired, however, to be critical, and in her utter weariness lost consciousness as soon as her head touched the pillow, and slept dreamlessly until dawn came feebly through the coarse lace curtain that, stiff and gray with dust, hung at the one window of the room. She rubbed her eyes and looked in bewilderment at the unfamiliar surroundings. Then she remembered, and the trip, with all its attendant circumstances, came back. She speculated as to the probable amount the sheep had shrunken on the way, how they would compare with other consignments in the yards, whether the market conditions were favorable or otherwise, what the commission agents whom she had known through correspondence for many years would be like. Her experience with the night clerk came to mind, and her frown at the recollection of his insolence changed to a puzzled look as she thought of her retort. Whatever had prompted her to make the empty boast that he would know her before she left Omaha. It was as unlike her as anything she could imagine. But it had seemed to say itself. She had a subconscious feeling that there was still something else of which she wished to think before getting up, and as she searched her mind, it flashed upon her, the stranger who had bumped into her in the dark. Of course, that was it. She heard his pleasant voice plainly, and saw his face with great distinctiveness, as revealed by the brakeman's light. While she recalled his features individually, his eyes, his mouth, his chin, and the meaning they conveyed, his manner with its mixture of friendliness and reserve, she mechanically rubbed her forehead with her fingertips, as though the action might assist in catching some elusive memory that was just beyond her reach. Her brows knit in perplexity, 
and she murmured finally, He didn't seem a stranger, somehow, and yet he was, of course. It would not be possible for me to ever forget a man like that. It seemed as if there was bewilderment in her face as she laid her hand upon her heart, as if somehow I knew him here. Kate's belief that no better sheep in their class than hers would be found in the stockyards was justified by subsequent events. Her shipment not only topped the market, but she received for her yearling lambs $14.65 a head, the highest paid since the Civil War. This high rate was due not only to European disturbances, but to the quality and condition of the sheep, and therefore, apart from the attention which she naturally would have attracted, she was, as the owner, an object of interest in the yards, as well as in the stock exchange offices and the bank. Basking in the reflected sunshine of his employer's success, Bowers came as near strutting as was possible for one of his retiring temperament. Kate was finding a new experience in her meeting with the members of the firm to which she had consigned her sheep, and others with whom her business brought her in contact about the crowded exchange. These prosperous, clean-cut men, alert, incisive of speech and thought, were an unfamiliar type. Their undisguised approbation, their respect, their eagerness to be kind, brought a new sensation to Kate, who had grown up and lived in an atmosphere of prejudice. There were moments when the tears were absurdly close to her eyes. Aside from the circumstances, which in any event would have attracted more than a little attention to Kate, the extent of the recognition and the courtesy extended to her was a personal triumph. Her simplicity and good sense, her reserve, together with a kind of timid, questioning friendliness, her unconsciousness of being in any way unusual, made her an instantaneous and complete success with those she met the following day, and a celebrity in the yards. Her business was finished within a few hours, and when she made her adieu, Kate looked for Bowers to tell him that she was leaving for Prouty on a night train, presuming that he would wish to do likewise. But Bowers appeared to have vanished as entirely as though he had been shanghaied and was a hundred miles at sea. It was singular that he had not first learned her plans before leaving the stockyards. The omission hurt Kate, for they had talked much of what they would do and see when they reached Omaha. Bowers, with his superior knowledge of city life, was to show her about. They were to dine together in one of the best restaurants, to see a play and look in the shops. Kate had never been on a streetcar or in a machine, so she had counted on him to pilot her from South Omaha to the city proper. Disappointed and hurt by Bowers's neglect, she wandered aimlessly about the streets in the vicinity of her hotel, stopping occasionally to look at the cheap wares displayed in the windows of the small shops of South Omaha. The hurrying passerbys slackened their steps to stare at her in candid interest, and she wondered if it were possible that her conspicuousness had anything to do with Bowers's mysterious disappearance. It seemed an ungenerous thought, 
But how else account for it? Knowing as she did that he had no friends, no business in Omaha. And in the past, there had never been a time when he had not preferred her society to that of everyone else. The elation consequent upon her day of triumph gradually oozed out to be replaced by the sense of dreariness that comes from being alone in a crowd. Then, too, she had a feeling of contempt for herself, for the swift dreams of something different aroused by the day's events. Optimism had come to be synonymous with weakness to Kate. Now, as she stared indifferently at a display of tawdry blouses, she was asking herself if she had not yet learned her lesson, but that upon the strength of a little ephemeral happiness she must needs begin and build air castles again. The waning day was cloudy, the crossings deep with slush, the pavements damp, and the chill of her wet soles made her shiver, adding the last touch to her forlornness and the depression which Bowers's desertion had induced. She dreaded returning to her cheerless room, but she could not walk the streets indefinitely, so she bought a magazine to read until it was time to dine alone in some one of the neighborhood's cheap restaurants. The night clerk was already on duty, and through the fly-specked plate-glass window of the office saw her coming. Dashing from behind the desk, he skated recklessly across the tiles to open the door. "'Say, you're all right,' his tone was emphatic and sincere. Kate eyed him without enthusiasm. "'Why didn't you tell me?' he demanded. "'Tell you what?' He held up the afternoon newspaper that he had in his hand. Kate's own face looked back at her from the front page, and her name in the headlines met her astonished eyes. The picture, which had been made from a snapshot, was excellent, and the text was a highly colored recital of her achievements obtained from Bowers. The clerk's tone conveyed his admiration as he confessed. "'Looks like you knew what you were talking about when you said I'd know who you was before you left Omaha.' Sitting on the edge of her bed, Kate read the article again, but her first feeling of elation did not return. With her hands clasped about one knee, in her characteristic attitude, she stared at a festoon of dusty cobwebs hanging from the ceiling, and there gradually crept over her a feeling of lassitude. She had established a record price with the best trainload of rain sheep that ever had come into the stockyards. She had been accepted as an equal in achievement and intelligence by every one of the worthwhile men with whom she had come in contact, and as a climax of the day's events, she was proclaimed a successful woman in the public prints. Yet, in the silence of the cheerless room, she was cognizant of the fact that nothing inside her was changed thereby. There remained in her heart the same dreary emptiness. Two tears slipped slowly down her cheeks. She brushed them away with the back of her hand, looked at her watch and got up. She had no appetite, but ordering food in a restaurant would help the time to pass. After rubbing such mud as she could from her boots, she smoothed her hair before the mirror and put on her hat. The sheep woman was the sinusure 
of the respectful gaze of many eyes as she came down the stairs. Outside all the world was going home with eager, hurrying feet, and she paused, looking indifferently up and down the street. The nearest restaurant was not inviting, but it answered well enough. After a few mouthfuls, Kate crumpled the paper napkin, paid her bill, and walked dispiritedly back to the hotel. More often than not, the momentous happenings in life come without warning, and with no stage setting to enhance the dramatic effect. Certainly there was nothing in the announcement of the now too friendly clerk that she had a visitor who looked like new money, to prognosticate that once Kate had crossed the threshold of the red plush parlor, her life would never be the same again. It was Bowers, of course, she thought. Bowers come too late to take her to the restaurant, whose delectable grub was one of his boasted memories of Omaha. Her conclusion was correct, that Bowers was there, wearing his new clothes like a disguise, his eyes shining with eagerness. But it was not Bowers that Kate saw in the dim light as she stepped through the doorway. It was the man who at intervals had been strongly in her thoughts all day, for whom she had unconsciously kept the lookout, impelled by an inexplicable desire to see him again and remove that perplexing, haunting sense of having seen him somewhere before. Kate felt herself trembling when the man arose from the sofa facing the door. As if by divination, she recognized some impending event of importance to herself. He was no casual caller, brought by idle curiosity. She was sure of that. There was in his eyes a tremendous hope, a yearning tenderness in his face, which seemed to draw her into his arms. It required an effort of will to remain passive as he approached. Without explanation or apology, he put his hand under her chin and raised it with all gentleness, studying, meanwhile, every lineament of her face. Kate watched the light of conviction grow in his eyes. Then she felt an arm about her shoulder and herself being drawn close against her father's heart as he exclaimed brokenly, My baby girl, grown up, my Kate. End of chapter 27 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas